All our life, he has been faithful. All our life, he has been so, so good to us. I love the fact that I get to be in both services. And this morning, in the first service, we sang, God is so good. And then today, just singing this, his goodness is running after us. How good our God is to us. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. Welcome to week 7 of our Names of God series, where we are walking through these names revealed to us by God. And of course, knowing God by His names is one of the great privileges of being a child of God. That we're able to know God, not just, not just in a generic sense, but God has revealed his names himself to us personally. And we are able to come to trust him more. Think about this. We have seen Elohim, the strong creator. We've seen El Elyon, the most high God. El Rai, the God who sees me. El Shaddai, God almighty or God sufficient. Last week we saw Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. This is who he is. And then think about this. Our names are the clearest ways that we identify ourselves and others. So we use names to introduce ourselves. And normally we forget the names of others within about three minutes of meeting them. But it's kind of how we do it. And as I said last week, when anyone calls me by my name, Michael, or I introduce my, myself as Micah, people normally don't immediately think who is like God. As I said last week, my name didn't mean what I normally thought it meant, meaning it was not a description of my godliness. And you guys didn't seem near as shocked about that as I was. But it is not a description, but a declaration. It's actually a rhetorical question. And when you think about that my name has the meaning of a rhetorical question, it says a lot about me and who I am. But what a question it is. Who is like God? And the rhetorical answer is, of course, no one, nothing. And in our culture, names don't describe our character as they did back in biblical days. Instead, our names are just identifiers, even though the Bible says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. So when you think about it, we didn't pick our names, but when people hear our names, they think about something. When people hear our names, they think about our character. They think about how we live. They think about how we have responded to them. Yet, praise be to God, God is not like us. God reveals himself to us in many names, unveiling each name at specific moments in redemptive history, showing us, hear this, showing us not just who God is, but how God acts towards his people. So we know God by the way God has revealed himself to us and the way that God has acted on our behalf. And everything finds its definition in relation to God. Yet one name stands above all other names. And this morning we come to that name, the most used name for God in the Old Testament. It is the name Yahweh, also known as Jehovah and I Am. It's a name used more than any other name in the Bible. It's used over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. It's used around eight times per page. And it appears in every book of the Old Testament except for Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But over and over again through this name, God's people are reminded of the power of I Am. 
And this Hebrew word, let me just, in case you don't know any Hebrew words, after the day you will know one. The Hebrew word for Yahweh is Hayah. So say it with me. Say it again. So now you know a Hebrew word. It means I am or to be. So Yahweh does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He does not come from anywhere. He is not going anywhere. He is the same. He is forever I am. And the beautiful thing is that in biblical times, scribes, when they would write the name Yahweh, they would immediately stop. They would go wash themselves, change their clothes, get a new pen, and then begin writing. In fact, even uh, rabbis were, were afraid of this name, so they would call, instead of saying Yahweh, they would call it the name, the great and terrible name, the unutterable name, the holy name, the distinguished name. So much so that they changed that name and they started calling God Adonai by his title, that he is Lord. So there was a reverence, there was a respect for the name Lord. And just think about how that translates in our lives. Do we respect his name? Do we have a holy fear, admiration for his name? How do we respond to that name? And then I think about the words of A.W. Tozer. Most of you know this, one of my favorite writers, theologians, but he says this, it is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. So few of us have let our hearts gaze in wonder at the I Am. And for this, we are paying a heavy price in the secularization of our religion, meaning the church, and the decay of our inner lives. So there's a price to be paid when we don't think of God as we should. So let's dive in this morning and let's behold Yahweh, the I Am, the self-existent God. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we honor God's word. We're going to read Exodus 3. In your bulletins it says 1 through 14, but as I was studying Friday night, I had to add a few more verses. So now we're going to go through verse 17. It says this, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as Yahweh, the I Am, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts today in a way that not just confronts who you were to Moses, but who you are today to us and who you forever will be. Oh, God, speak, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. Let me just say this. For many people in our society, the God of their liking is kind of the, the grandpa-in-the-sky God. It's a God who he gives gifts, he visits occasionally, but ultimately he's not very involved in our lives. And no wonder that for many people, Grandpa God isn't worth seeking. Grandpa God doesn't really do much for us. And contrast that, Grandpa God, with what we just read in Exodus 3, when God reveals himself to Moses through a burning bush. Here we see the, the gap between the truth about God, who he is, and contemporary misconceptions about him as just like a grandpa figure. And let's consider for a moment the fiery God who reveals himself in glory so that we might also stand in awe of this same God. And let's start from the beginning. So here's Moses. He's minding his business. He's living the ordinary pattern of life in Midian. It's a pattern that we understand he's had for 40 years. So Moses' life can be broke up into 40, three 40-year 40 periods. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he lived in Egypt. The second 40 years of his life, he lived in Midian as a shepherd. The last 40 years of his life, he kind of was a, was a shepherd to the people of Israel, leading them all throughout the wilderness. So he arrives at this mountain with his father-in-law's sheep looking for pasture. He wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for him. And God appeared to him in a flame out of a bush that burned but wasn't consumed. And that was something that Moses just simply had to see. So Moses not only looked at the bush, he made a decision to turn aside is what we read. And that word, 
or that phrase, turn aside, literally means to go off the beaten path or to go off the normal road. So in the midst of a normal, everyday experience of tending the flock, something disrupted Moses' life and he chose to go off the beaten path to find out what it was. So he was opening himself up in that moment to the unexpected and overwhelming presence of God. And that's the same way that God works today. I don't know if you know this, but God seeks out or seeks us out even when we're not seeking him. If you want to know what Yahweh is like, he's the God who pursues you even when you're not pursuing him. He's the God who chases after you even when you're running from him. Yet, if we truly want to know him, please hear this. We must do what Moses did. We must also turn aside. Because notice this, what we just read. God did not begin to speak or reveal himself to Moses until Moses made a conscious decision to turn aside. Until Moses turned away from whatever else he was focusing on and focused on that solely. And then God spoke. And then God revealed himself. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to unpack four truths concerning Yahweh, the I am, the self-existent one. Truth number one is this, Yahweh is the ever-existing one. He's the ever-existing one. And I want to begin again with the burning bush. There are actually bushes in the Sinai wilderness that are that secrete an oil and basically under extreme heat they will actually catch fire. They're called gas plants, they're called also burning bushes, but normally their fire doesn't last long. It's a quick burn and they are out. But in verse 3, Moses takes notice of this bush because there's a fire here, but it's not going out, meaning that in this moment, the law of thermodynamics is being violated. Though the bush burned with fire, it did not diminish. There was no leaf that curled up, no branch was Charred, it burned, but it was not consumed. And the burning bush is to give us a glimpse of God's eternal, but also his self-sustaining nature. Think about it like this. So fire needs fuel. And when fire has no more fuel, fire goes out. Yet, the fire that Moses saw was self-sustaining. It didn't require anything. So it is with God, the eternal I am, needs no external fire or fuel, excuse me. Nothing precedes him, nothing sustains him, nothing contains him, nothing helps him. And this fire also shows us the otherness of God, that God is completely set apart from us. You know, it's not just that God is like us, so therefore we want to draw near to him. No, it's because God is so different from us. That there is a curiosity in us to, to want to know him and praise be to God. We're able to behold his glory. But notice here, Moses begins to draw near to the fire and God says, stop, stop. Moses had to prepare himself before he had an encounter with God. And God says to Moses, take off your shoes because you are on what? You're on holy ground. And it wasn't Moses' presence that made this ground holy. It was God's presence. And don't miss this. Please write this down if you need to. 
The Lord's instruction here reminds us that we must come to God, hear this, on God's terms, not our own. We must come to God on God's terms, not our own. Oftentimes in our contemporary culture, we make a God in our image and we worship that God however we want to. But the Bible reveals to us a God who has made us in his image and he tells us how he must be worshipped. Meaning, don't miss this, we don't get to come to God saying, God, I'll do this, 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 and this if you do this. Because if God were to say, okay, we'll do it your way, then guess who's Lord of that relationship? You are. If you're dictating the terms of your relationship, then you're the Lord. That doesn't happen here. He's the Lord. He dictates it. He says, you come to me on my terms and my terms alone. And as God begins to unveil his plans and his purposes for Moses and the people of Israel, it leads to this amazing revelation that you see on the screen in verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And again, I am means I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be. Or I am who you think, whatever you think I am. No, God is saying, I am who I am telling you I am. I was reminded this week of the following devotional thought, and it's so good. It says, I have long wondered why God would call himself by such a name. But slowly I'm learning its significance. A sentence needs only two things to be complete, a subject and a verb. So when God says his name is I am, it conveys the concept that he is complete in himself. He is the subject and he is the verb. Therefore, he is everything we could possibly need. And in this moment, God is not just declaring his existence. He's declaring a particular kind of existence. For the name Yahweh doesn't just speak of the fact that God exists. It speaks of the fact that God is self-existent. Meaning, in case you're wondering what that means, it means that God does not depend upon us for his existence. We depend on God for ours. Meaning, if you look at God and shake your fist at him and say, God dropped dead, guess what? He'll still be God in the morning. But if God were to look at you and shake his fist at you and say, drop dead, guess what? We're planning your funeral. Just kind of the way it works. It's the reality of who God is. But God is the self-existent one. And God is unchanging. He has always been. He will always be. And he is different from us. The difference between God and, and us is more than the difference between the sun and a light bulb. It's more than the difference between all the oceans and a single raindrop. It's more than the difference between the universe and the room that we are presently in. All of creation can pass away in an instant, but God necessarily exists forever. This is who he is. No one or nothing gives him power. No influence or nothing influences what he does. He is altogether absolutely I am, completely independent. He relies on nothing for his existence. And again, as I just said, he is the unchanging one. It's impossible that God can get better or it's impossible that God could ever get worse. This is who he is. But did you know that you and I, 
are continually changing. We're either progressing or we are digressing. Even, as I've said this before many times, the Bible tells us, and I don't know where you are in this, this picture, but the Bible says that beauty is fleeting. So the Bible tells us that there is a day in our life where you will look in the mirror and it's going to be the most beautiful you will ever be. I don't know if you've gotten there yet. I'm not going to judge that. But from that moment, whenever that happens, then beauty begins to run away from you as fast as it can. And you might chase it, but you will never catch up to it. We are continually changing, yet God doesn't change. He doesn't change, yet, miss, don't miss this, even though God is the unchanging one, write it down, he is also the becoming one. Meaning, in a revelational sense, God is becoming whatever you need him to be. Not want him to be. Whatever you need him to be, he is showing himself as that to you. This is the beauty of the God that we serve. Whatever you need, he is. God invites us to fill in the blank with his name. Whatever the need is, write his name in it because he is the answer to it. Before we move on, let me lay one more thought before you. To the Hebrew language does not have past, present, and future tenses. Therefore, the possible translations here could be, I was who I was, meaning past tense, I am who I am, present tense, or I will be who I will be, future tense. Now, each of these translations, of course, are legitimate based on context, but God isn't saying, I was, meaning I'm a has-been. God isn't saying, I will be, as if to say, I've never been before, but I will be in the future, I'm pretty sure, I hope so. No, what God is saying is this, I was God, I will be God, I forever am God. Behold him, this is who he is. Yahweh is the ever-existing one, but number two, Yahweh is the ever-present one. He's the ever-present one. Look at verses 11 and 12. Moses said to God, who am I? So Moses did exactly what we do, focused on himself. That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He, meaning God, said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have just sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Just think about how God deals with Moses here. God does not reinforce Moses with positive thoughts. God does not say, Moses, you have underestimated your abilities. God doesn't say, here, Moses, here's a mirror, look into it and repeat after me. I am good enough, I am smart enough, and people will like me. That doesn't happen. God also doesn't say, Moses, close your eyes, envision yourself standing before Pharaoh. Now envision yourself drop-kicking him, doing a people's elbow, pinning him. You win. Envision that. God doesn't do that either. In fact, God doesn't even answer Moses' question. Moses says, who am I? God says, Moses, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me being present with you. Basically, what God was saying is this. Moses, I don't need you, but I'm going to be present with you. I will be with you. And this is where we see that God isn't just the ever-living one. He's the ever-present one. Ever-present with his people. Ever-present on behalf of his people. Even Jesus echoed these words at his ascension. Jesus said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. 
Take a moment and let that oldie but goodie play in your mind. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I will be with you. Listen to those words. Let them speak to your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart and your mind to what that means. He is with you. Therefore, our confidence doesn't come in how good we think we are, how powerful we think we are. Our confidence comes in the fact that our God is with us. He's with us. Just think about the one who is ever present with you. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way. What more does Moses need? Moses said, who am I? This showed his weakness. But God said, never mind who you are. Certainly I will be with you. This was strength enough for Moses. And it's strength enough for us. He will be with us. He is the ever-present one. Number three, he is the ever-caring one. He's the ever-caring one or the compassionate one. Look at verses 7 and 8 and don't miss what God is saying here. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. So Moses' experience so far, emphasize a separation between him and God. So Moses could not burn without being consumed. Moses certainly could not speak in the midst of a fire. Moses could not even stand in the presence of God without taking his shoes off. The separation between God and Moses was real. Yet God is showing his care and concern, not just for Moses, but also for the people of Israel. Yes, God is separate from us, but he's not distant from us. Yes, God is separate from us, but he cares and connects and he knows our needs. You know, God is not just appearing to Moses as a God who exists. He's appearing to Moses as a God who's involved. And think about this. In the book of Genesis, two times we hear that God came down. But both times in Genesis, God came down to judge at the Tower of Babel and then at Sodom and Gomorrah. But here... God says, I'm coming down again, but it's not coming down to judge. It's coming down to deliver. This God is an all-consuming fire, but he's also a God of compassion and sensitivity, and he is keenly aware of our pain and our needs. The true God of the universe is actively involved in your life and my life, even in situations where God seems silent or God seems absent he isn't he cares he is concerned and what he says at the burning bush we see how he responds to his people then and how he responds to us now just listen to these words again in verses seven and eight I have seen you I've seen your affliction I've heard your cry I know your suffering, and I have come down to deliver you. I've seen, I see you. God's saying to you this morning, I see you. I hear you. I hear your cries. I know what pain you're going through. I know, and I care. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that he's a God who sees, who hears, who knows, who cares? 
Sometimes we live a Christian life, and the Christian life we live can be described as a, as a saggy mattress. And let me explain. Saggy mattress, kind of firm here, firm here, sagging in the middle. And in our lives, oftentimes we look back and we go, there was a time in my life where I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I know my sins have been forgiven. I know there is no condemnation for me. I know I am saved. Then we look at our future and we say, I know heaven is my home. I am going to be with him forever. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. And in our lives, our past is taken care of. Our, our future is taken care of. The problem is right where we are is sagging. Because what about tomorrow? What about next week? What about next month? What about what is coming do you find yourself there in the the sagging middle just wondering about how god is going to work in your life let me remind you again today friend he sees you he hears you he knows whatever you're going through and he deeply cares for you oh how he cares for you let me ask you again do you believe that do you believe his care and concern for you? If you don't believe it, then you're believing a lie because he cares for you. And if you don't believe it, then let me give you this. Look to the cross. Because the Bible says this, God forever proved his love for you, his care for you, his concern for you. And this, while we were still sinning, Jesus died for us. That's how much he cares for us. That's how much he loves us. Us. He's the ever-caring one, and that leads us to number four. Yahweh is the ever-saving one. He's the ever-saving one. Look at verses 16 and 17. On the screen it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, there it is again, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. So I will bring you out of your affliction. And it's here that the name Yahweh, or I am, reaches its fullest meaning. For it is in this name that God shows himself as being permanently existent, permanently present, permanently caring for us, but also permanently saving, redeeming his people. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. I want to show you a couple things. In Exodus chapter 6, God is speaking to Moses, and in verse 2 and 3 of Exodus 6, it says this, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And what an interesting statement that is, especially in light of the fact that in the book of Genesis, over a hundred times the word Yahweh, or the name Yahweh, is used. So what, is, what does he mean? God had indeed revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as Yahweh. God had shown his power over nature, over history, over people, over events, yet the patri patriarchs never fully knew the name I am. Why? And here's the answer, because for the first time, as seen in the book of Exodus, God was going to truly deliver his people, to redeem his people, hear this, by and through blood. It's going to 
redeem his people. And in fact, look at chapter 6, verse 6. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. Listen, the Exodus would be the first great act of redemption. But praise be to God, it would not be the last. It would not be the last. For when we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene, we realize that Jesus is still the saving one. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene in the Gospel of John, Jesus continually said, I am. I am the light. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Showing himself to be our Savior, God, forever. But then, but then we fast forward 2,000 years to where you and I are living. And let me say this, our God still saves. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God still saves? That's the only hope we have is that God is still saving us and saving others. He's a God who saves us. And many of us, again, have no problems trusting God for our past, for our future. But what about tomorrow? What about what we're facing right now? And let me say this this morning. The one who called Moses has also called you, and his name is I Am. His name is I Am. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. Let me give you a few scenarios. And let me tell you how God answers his people. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, I don't think I'm smart enough to figure out all this that's before me. And he answers you and he says, I am. I am. You might be saying today, I don't know what way I'm supposed to go or what decision I'm supposed to make. And he says to you, I am. You might be here today and you might be saying, I don't know who to trust. And he says, I am. You might be saying, I don't know who is really for me. It feels like everybody is against me. Who's for me? And he says, I am. I am. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, nobody listens to me. I don't feel like anybody hears my voice. And he says, I am. I am. Maybe you're saying, my marriage is crashing upon me. I don't know where to turn. And he says, I am. Maybe you look at your life and you said, I always hoped that things would be different or it feels like that thing that I was pursuing has passed me by. And he says to you, I am. Maybe you're here today and you're starting all over and you're just saying, I don't know how. And he says, I am. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I can't. And he says, I am. I am. Maybe you're saying, what if I fell again and again and again? And he says, I am more than able to handle you, to cover you. Maybe you're saying, I just don't know if I believe anymore. And he says, I am trustworthy. You can believe in me. Or you say, I've given all I can give and I just don't have anything more to give. And he says to you, I am enough. He's enough for us. He is whoever we need him to be. Whatever you need today, there's an answer in him. And let me end this way. 
Today we have looked at Exodus 3. In Exodus chapter 5, and you can go ahead and turn there as well, Moses and Aaron would stand before Pharaoh with a message from God. And in verses 1 and 2, here is the message. In fact, I think we're even going to put it on the screen. Here's the message. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, don't miss this, Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. Moses was where he was because of Yahweh. Yahweh had led him there, yet Pharaoh had no desire to know I am. In fact, one, one writer says this, the phrase, I don't know the Lord, means I don't recognize the authority of your God. I don't recognize the authority of your God. Little did Pharaoh know that the crucial decision that he was going to make that day opened the door to discouragement, distress, disease, destruction, and death for him, his family, and the nation that he led. And let me just lay it before us today. The decision that we must make to obey or disobey, to turn to the Lord or turn from the Lord, to yield to the Lord, or to fight against the Lord. Those are not only life-changing decisions, they have consequences that affect our tomorrow, but also our eternity. Those decisions affect our eternity. So here's how I want to end this morning. Have you seen this God for who he is? Have you seen him as Yahweh, I am, the self-existent God, but the God who is with you and cares for you? Have you seen him for who he is, and have you responded rightly to him? Have you come to God on his terms? Not on your terms. Your terms means your God in the relationship. That doesn't work for the God of the universe. Have you come to God on, your, on his terms, meaning have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from trusting in yourself? And have you turned to Jesus Christ alone, looking to him as Savior and Lord? The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved, not hope you might be saved. No, you will be saved now and forever. That is the beauty of the promise that we have. Have you ever done that? And then secondly, if you're a child of God in this room, you find yourself right now in the saggy middle. Just, just struggling with today, struggling with tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, hear me. He is whatever you need him to be. Whatever you need him to be, he says to you, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am more than able to meet your needs because I am El Shaddai, the all-powerful God. I'm more than able to know what you're going through because I am El Rai, the God who sees you. I'm more than able to provide for you because I am Jehovah Jireh and I will provide for my own. This is who he is, who he forever will be. Do you know him? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. And I'm going to call the...
praise team forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your Holy Spirit attending your word. Holy Spirit, move in our midst right now, God, just convicting hearts, convicting lives. God, will we need that conviction. For any who are not saved, God, show us. Holy Spirit, show them in this moment that they must be born again. That in this moment, God, they would call on the name of Jesus and be saved. They would confess their sin. God, they have sinned before you, a holy God. They would ask for your forgiveness and they would declare that Jesus, you did for them what they could never do. You died for their sin. And they're trusting you to save them. But also, God, pray for the believer in this room that's struggling because of their own affliction, because of their own difficulty. And God, they've cried out to you. They've screamed out to you. And they've even begin, begun to question, Lord, whether you are even caring or hearing them. And God, today, this word is a reminder to all of us, God, that you see us, you hear us, you know us, and you care for us. God, speak that, I pray, into hearts and lives across this room, those even watching online today, God, you, you care for us. You hear us, Lord. Not one cry has been unheard. Lord, you hear our cries. Encourage our hearts, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.